You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 40 Davison Pasha. Thanks for joining me. Last time, we talked a lot about 18th century European views towards what they referred to as the Orient, specifically Egypt. In this episode, we are going to flip perspectives and examine what these societies Napoleon was about to encounter were actually like hopefully strip away some of those old Orientalist myths and take a look at the Napoleonic-era Middle East as it actually was. Even some very good scholars of Napoleonic history struggle with this task. People who write about Napoleon tend to be specialists in European history, and so the Middle East is quite literally out of their area. I admit I'm no exception. Fortunately, I have a friend who has the knowledge we need to bridge the gap. His name is Derek Davison, and I've invited him to join us today. I told Derek he could write his own introduction, so here goes. Quote, Derek Davison is a writer and podcaster who spent a frankly ridiculous amount of time studying Middle Eastern history at the University of Chicago. Nowadays, his writing on history, U.S. foreign policy, and world affairs can be found at Loblog, and that's the way it was, and therela.com. He will never log off. End quote. Without further ado, here's my interview with Derek Davison. All right, Derek Davison, welcome. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. So, let's talk... Egypt and the Middle East in the 18th century. Okay, uh, sure. Why not? <laughs> it's Wednesday. That's a good day for <laughs> Egypt in the 18th century. Let's start with the absolute basics. You talk about Egypt in this era. The like almost interchangeable term is the Mamluks. Right. Who were the Mamluks? So, um, unfortunately, uh, even though Wednesday is the day for 18th century Egypt, we have to go back a lot further <laughs> to talk about the Mamluks, because they were around as far back as the 13th century, uh, and that's really where their their origins are. Uh, the Mamluks were... The, the word Mamluk in Arabic means uh, something that is owned or someone who is owned, uh, so you can derive from that that they were slaves. They were slave soldiers, specifically. Uh, there are a lot of words in Arabic for slave that all have kind of different connotations, but Mamluk was the one that was used for, for slave soldiers. These were initially Central Asian Turkic slaves who were brought into Egypt by uh, the Fatimid Caliphate, which ruled from the 10th century to the end of the 12th century. And then uh, after they were overthrown by Saladin, uh, he founded the Ayyubid dynasty, the very short-lived Ayyubid dynasty, uh, which ruled from the end of the 12th century to the middle of the 13th century. Uh, both of these dynasties made a practice of bringing in slave soldiers, primarily out of a sense that they could be more easily controlled, that their loyalties would be with the sultan or the caliph, as, as the case may be, uh, rather than with some other faction in society, and so they could be more reliable. Uh, as it turned out, that was not really the case in the long run. Uh, and what wound up happening was the, the Mamluks uh, themselves, the actual slave soldiers, as they rose through the ranks to occupy higher and higher positions in the army, positions in the bureaucracy, 
they really amassed more functional power than the Ayyubid sultans, most of whom were not very effective rulers. In 1250, a Mamluk named Ibak became the de facto ruler of Egypt. Uh, they spent about another 10 years propping up uh, Ayyubid kind of puppets before in 1260 uh, just kind of shoving the dynasty out and ruling in their own right. What makes the Mamluks unique is that they're not uh, a dynasty per se. Uh, there are other examples of slave soldiers kind of overthrowing their masters and establishing their own ruling families, but the Mamluks didn't really work that way. Uh, the Mamluks... The Mamluk system operated on the basis of factions. So the Mamluks, you know, the Mamluks of a particular emir uh, would kind of coalesce around one another and they would support their boss, their leader, uh, as he, you know, tried to work his way up the ladder and eventually maybe become Sultan someday. Uh, and these factions were constantly kind of duking it out for primacy in the the sultanate uh you had you did have sultans who tried to leave uh the sultanate to their children occasionally this was successful uh, oftentimes it was not the children would would rule uh, as puppets for a little while and then they'd be overthrown by new mamluks uh the idea was that you couldn't really participate in the Mamluk political system unless you had gone through this process of being purchased as a slave and brought to Egypt and kind of incorporated into a cohort and, and you know, risen through the ranks that way. Uh, so they're a unique, a unique dynasty. Well, I'm, I'm going to call them a dynasty. And they're not really a dynasty. It's a unique system uh, in Islamic history. And really, I mean, there are not a lot of examples of anything like this uh, anywhere else in the world, to be to be totally honest, and so th that's who the Mamluks were and and where they came from. The Mamluks ruled Egypt from 1250 until 1517. Uh, they were then defeated. Egypt was conquered by the Ottomans, but the Mamluks didn't go away. Uh, the Ottomans left them more or less in place as a kind of military auxiliary and, you know, aristocracy, kind of inherent aristocracy. Uh, so they stayed there, and you know, we can talk about what happened uh, between 1517 and Napoleon, but the upshot is uh, by the time you get to 1798, they have once more kind of reasserted their control over Egypt, and, and Egypt has become a mostly autonomous place by that point. So to underscore, end of the 18th century, the system really hasn't changed all that much since the Middle Ages. Still bringing in people from, uh, I think by this point, it's mostly like uh, like Circassians, people from the Caucasus. Right, yes. At some point, while the the there's a, an, an initial period of Mamluk rule where it's mostly kind of Central Asian, Eurasian steppe Turks who are running the place, but they start to look elsewhere for their slaves. And as you say, they bring in a lot of Circassians. Eventually, the Circassians rise up through the ranks and they become the, the dominant power in the state. By the, the end of the 18th century, it's, it's expanded further, partly because of uh, Ottoman connections. You have Albanians, other Balkan peoples being uh, purchased and brought to Egypt. You have uh, other Caucasian peoples, Georgians and, and uh uh, I don't know. I don't think Armenians, but definitely Georgians coming in and, uh, you know, working their way through the ranks. So it's it's become even more kind of diverse. Now, um, to the French, they looked at that system because this was this was known in the West. That these people were slave soldiers from elsewhere. And so the French looked at this system and said, oh, these people are foreign tyrants ruling over the native population. Is that how things were perceived in Egypt as these, you know, these people were outsiders or had they kind of become part of the society? No, they were they were very much outsiders. I, I think that you could you could say, actually, by this point, they were probably considered even more outsiders than they had been, say, in the 13th century. Um, initially, the Mamluks were. Uh, almost a heroic bunch. I mean, you can go to Cairo today and the 
Cairo Military Museum and see busts of, uh, you know, two of the the uh, first Mamluk rulers, uh, Qutuz and Baibars, who were responsible for fending off the Mongols uh, and making sure that the Mongols didn't conquer Egypt and kind of preserving not just Egypt, but really Islam in a sense. You know, the, Egypt became a kind of repository for the the faith after the Mongols conquered Baghdad. So I mean they were they were hailed as as great heroes and defenders of Egypt and defenders of Islam. But they were outsiders and they were particularly uh they began to grate on people especially in Cairo. Uh so when we talk about what the Egyptian kind of the the the, the Egyptians themselves thought about these guys Mostly, what this that that means is what the the people in Cairo, what Kyrenes felt about them, uh, because they're the ones who had to deal with uh, <laughs> deal with them on a regular basis, <laughs> uh, and they they graded on the Egyptians mostly because of this constant factional competition, uh, which often spilled out into the streets, often turned violent. Uh, never became kind of a never rose to the level of like a full-on civil war, uh, but particularly on the death of a sultan, but also you know other times if there were two factions that just didn't get along with each other, you would have Mamluks kind of riding through the streets of Cairo and uh, bashing each other over the head, and you know <laughs> regular citizens would get caught in caught up in that and you know suffer property damage or worse uh as these guys kind of duked it out with one another and that as you can imagine uh didn't what wasn't the kind of thing that people really appreciated uh <laughs> it compounded by the fact that these guys were not arab they were foreigners in in the in the strictest sense many of them wouldn't have spoken arabic uh you know they and and oh, wow. after the initial defense of Islam against the Mongols, they, you know, these guys weren't terribly good Muslims. They weren't, on the whole, terribly pious. I mean, they drank, they fought, they killed other Muslims, which you're not supposed to do. Uh, so there was a lot to, I don't know, whatever the opposite of recommend them is, there was a lot, a lot for the people of Egypt to dislike. Uh, and when the Ottomans came in in the, the 16th century, for a period of time, maybe for the most of the rest of the 16th century, uh, there was a, a strong, you know, relatively strong Ottoman presence. It diminished more and more as the century wore on. And then, you know, in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries became almost non-existent. Um, and I think the Ottomans tried to impose some order, they tried to calm things down, they tried to impose, uh, in particular, some religious norms on the uh, on Egypt that maybe hadn't been there. And that taste of something a little more stable and calm, uh, I think, was probably something that, that Egyptians, and again, particularly Kyrenes, uh, appreciated. And, and so when it went away, when it began to go away, uh, and returned to the kind of the battle days of, uh, mobs and gangs of Mamluks riding through the city, smacking each other on the head, uh, you know, it was even more kind of intolerable for them because of that. Mm. You know, something you just touched on, which, um, you know, everything I've read about the Mamluks, um, you know, a word that crops up over and over again is, um, chaotic in describing their rule uh you know with these factional infighting and the kind of no clear succession and uh you know they're often not described as very good rulers and yet they held on for centuries so what was the secret to the success yeah i mean i i think it, it it's the power of the system was such that nobody else could amass enough power like even arab elites i mean they were really locked out of uh the the system by which you you could accrue kind of enough military power to challenge these guys and potentially overthrow them um i mean it was it was monopolized quite effectively among the among the mamluks as a whole now certainly they didn't get along with one another all the time and they were fighting uh, amongst one another, 
but there was no other group that had the space to uh, kind of challenge them uh, for primacy or to say, you know, hey, let's uh, let's overthrow these guys. Um, I think a, a, a crucial sign that the Egyptian people weren't all that fond of the Mamluks is you don't hear about a lot of unrest uh, in 15, after 1517 when the, the Ottomans take over Egypt. Uh, you don't hear a lot of rebellions or uh, elite, kind of Arab elites rising up and saying, you know, hey, uh, what happened? Let's bring the Mamluks back. They're, they're more or less content uh, to have the Ottomans come in and, and take over. And uh, there's no real change in any kind of anybody's day-to-day existence. It's just they're, you know, kicking some taxes up to, to Constantinople or Istanbul uh, now instead of, you know, everything going to the support the Mamluks. Hmm. This is part of the Ottoman Empire, and you've mentioned a couple times that wasn't quite as cut and dry as it might seem when Napoleon arrived. So what was the degree of control that the Ottomans had in 1798? By that point, it was pretty low. Uh, The Ottomans, when they came in, a couple of things happened that kind of made Egypt different from most other Ottoman conquests. Uh, When the Ottomans conquered places in their kind of core territory, so the Balkans or Anatolia, uh, they moved in, one of the things they would do fairly early on was they would move in and kind of either brush aside or uh, co-opt the local elites, uh, and they would replace them with Ottoman elites, Ottoman nobles, who would be given land grants to administer, uh, you know, portions of the territory and, and farm it for taxes and, uh, you know, send those taxes to the the the, the central government. Um, they didn't do that. I mean, that was very effective in sort of bringing these areas into the empire fully. Uh, they didn't do that in Egypt. I, I think they felt like Egypt was a special case. Certainly Egypt was really a special case. It was an, an established uh, nation, more or less, you know, had been uh, a nation for millennia by this point, really. Uh, and it, it had its own system, its own way of doing things that was heavily based on the Nile, uh, you know, its own way of administering itself that was based on the pe- peculiar uh, needs and, and circumstances of Egypt. And it was such an important conquest for the Ottomans. It was the single most important conquest they ever made, at least from a, a kind of economic perspective, uh, that... I don't think they wanted to do anything that might upset, you know, kind of tip over the apple cart or, or uh, you know, ruin anything. So they just said, pretty much said, we're going to leave things more or less in place uh, in terms of how this place is run. That's why the Mamluks didn't go away, because the Ottomans had no interest in kind of uh, major upheaval there. At the end of the 16th century, the Ottomans went through... Uh, a crisis. They had they fought what's known as the Thirteen Years' War with the Habsburgs. Uh, it didn't go terribly well for the Ottomans. Uh, they wound up arming their peasantry in uh, the Balkans uh, in order to fight. You know, in order to counter the Habsburgs. Uh, and as oppressed minority peasants might do when. The government suddenly hands them a firearm. <laughs> Many of them turned around and used it against the Ottomans, and there was a series of rebellions that are called the uh, the Jalali rebellions uh, that that uh, you know the Ottomans had to put down. The end result of this was that the empire shifted really from an empire of conquest to an empire of more or less management and bureaucracy. Um, there's a there's a real change in the early 17th century that, that the Ottomans go through. Uh, and I think that also took some of the starch out of any plans they might have had long term to kind of more fully incorporate Egypt into the empire. There was just no impetus for that kind of thing because they were they were struggling with their own problems, basically. Uh, consequently, the Mamluks, uh, had f- a fairly free reign to do as they pleased. 
There was nominally an Ottoman governor who was supposed to be uh, at the top of the hierarchy, uh, but those governors didn't have a natural base of support in Egypt, and they were frequently kind of uh, undercut by uh, the Ottomans themselves, who feared any governor being in Egypt for too long and amassing too much support that they could become a real problem. Uh, so they would change these, they would swap these guys out fairly frequently, sometimes as, as uh, on the order of one a year even, uh, and consequently uh, they were pretty weak, uh, especially the longer you know this administration went on. Uh, so already by the end of the 16th century, uh, you can start to see the Mamluks making a resurgence. Uh, by the end of the 18th century, I mean, they're just doing what they want. They're not following the, the Ottoman governor. Uh, they're basically ruling Egypt again themselves. There are two offices. Uh, they're not sultans anymore, but they, they have two offices. One's called the Sheikh al-Balad, or the chief of the city, uh, who's kind of the recognized as the preeminent Mamluk. It's not an official office, but it's uh, it's one that has more or less official trappings. Uh, you know, this whoever holds it is the, uh, the the ruler of the Mamluks. And they're responsible for uh, keeping keeping tabs on the governor, right? Right, right. Responsible for keeping tabs on the governor, responsible basically for telling the governor to go <laughs> when, he got a, when he was a problem. Uh, and the other office that, that was important was the uh, Amir al-Hajj, which is the person who runs the annual Hajj pilgrimage to, to Mecca. Uh, that office took on a lot more responsibility. It became sort of the military leader of the, mm. the Mamluks, kind of alongside maybe a little bit underneath the, the Sheikh al-Balad, but uh, they, were, they were more or less peer positions and leading Mamluks would kind of swap back and forth between these two offices and, uh, you know, to maintain their, uh, their positions at the top of the heap. Uh, those guys by, you know, by, as I say, by the end of the 18th century were by far more powerful than whatever governor, whatever poor s sad sack of a governor was, uh, sitting in Cairo kind of <laughs> trying to pretend that he was in charge of Egypt. Uh, it was the Mamluks who were really running the show. I mean, some of the sources, um, you know, these Ottoman governors almost sound like they're like under house arrest. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's a fair thing to say. They they were uh, they were not free to operate as they wished. They were uh, some of them would even have their movements restricted. I mean, you know, it was it was not a job that anybody would have wanted to have, even though it sounds mm -hmm. prestigious, like you're the Ottoman viceroy, basically, you're the Ottoman governor of this hugely important province that not not only includes all the wealth of Egypt, but includes Mecca and Medina. You know, it's a tremendously important uh, post on paper. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet you go there and you find out that these kind of maniac horse riding goons are, are really in charge and you, you, know, you <laughs> kind of serve at their pleasure basically. And quite literally, because there were our examples of the Mamluks just up and murdering Ottoman governors and nothing is done about it. Nothing could be done about it. There was no, no way to, to punish them for something like that. Wow. Um, but you know, despite all this, Egypt had in recent history been a big economic powerhouse. Was that still the case in uh, 98? Uh, yes. I mean, there was nothing about Egypt. In fact, the most of the 18th century for Egypt was uh, a pretty good one, economically speaking. Um, it was a period of relative to the, the previous couple of centuries, a period of uh, stability kind of countrywide. That stability might not have been felt so much in Cairo. Uh, but on the whole, it was a relatively stable time for, for Egypt, uh, and they still controlled, I mean, they still had the, the huge agricultural output of the Nile, uh, they still sat on a very important trade route to the Indian Ocean and, and India, uh, you know, ships would come up the Red Sea, technically the Ottomans required those ships to stop in Jeddah and then let Ottoman merchants 
take the cargo from there and take it to Suez, and from there it would go on to to Europe, etc. But in reality, uh, by this point, the Ottomans couldn't enforce that policy, so the Egyptians themselves were uh, were engaging in that trade again, and that meant uh, you know a little extra kind of economic benefit coming out of that that uh, that commerce. Mm. So what was life like for, we've talked a lot about the people who were on top, but obviously most Egyptians were poor farmers, the, the fellahin. And then there's also, of course, um, you know, you've already touched on a bit, average people in the towns. Um, how did they live? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a pretty standard kind of agrarian existence, I think, for most Egyptian peasants. Um, and these people, if you weren't in Cairo, if you weren't subject to kind of the, the regular gang violence, um, you probably didn't pay a lot of attention to who was running the country. I mean, the the sort of political details of who's preeminent and who isn't probably didn't make a lot of uh, difference to you. The, the life of Egyptian peasants was much more dictated by, uh, what's the Nile doing this year than what you know what anybody's doing in Cairo? Um, in the cities, there were artisans, there were merchants. Uh, a lot of Arabs held these positions. There was a, a a pretty thriving Arab elite in the cities. You know, wealthy Arabs who were nevertheless locked out, really, of of most possibilities of political advancement. Uh, though that was the population, I would say, kind of upper middle class to upper class Arabs who uh, Napoleon was was trying to appeal to with his, uh, uh, you know, his flyers and, and the, the propaganda that, that he rolled out. Again, I mean, this was for, for most people in the cities, uh, you're just trying to eke out an existence. Um, if you're not part of that economic elite, then uh, you're trying to, you know, sell your wares on the market and have enough money to feed your family and support your family. Um, you wouldn't have spent a lot of time thinking about uh, all these bigger political issues that are going on until, uh, you know, <laughs> Mamluk rode down the street and smashed your shop because he was <laughs> mad at some other Mamluk who was, you know, at the other end of the block. Uh, then you would be confronted by the fact that that you're ruled by these kind of lawless foreign uh, gangs that, that uh, uh, you know, are really detrimental to your life in a, in a material way. Mm. Bit of a difficult topic here because um, when we talk about the Middle East, even today, Westerners oftentimes um, tend to focus overly much on uh, religion, on Islam. But we're talking about an 18th century society and religion was massively important. So what was the role of religion, particularly Islam, um, in Egyptian society? I was a, it was big. It, Egypt's, part of Egypt's national image, uh, as far back, you know, I keep going back to the, the 13th century, but as far back as that, and maybe even earlier, but certainly after the, the Mongols rolled through the rest of the Middle East and destroyed the Abbasid Caliphate and uh, you know, were really threatened Islam fundamentally. Uh, Egypt became the the repository of of Islam. Uh, the the Abbasids, uh, you know, line of Abbasids uh, moved to Cairo, and the Mamluks kind of set them up as uh, more or less puppet caliphs. Nobody really believed that they were legitimate, but they pretended because it was easier. You know, it was kind of a a, a nice way of upholding the tradition of having a caliph, uh, and and but Egypt was was the place where Islam basically held the line against these animist or Christian. Some of them were Christian. I mean, the Mongols were a whole kind of mix of of religions. So you know, it was it was where the Islam kind of drew the line and and uh, you know was protecting you know was protected within Egypt. Uh, so it was a big deal. I mean, that was a big fundamental part of of uh, Egypt's uh, kind of view of itself. Um, the in fifteen seventeen when the Ottomans came in, um, they both kind of took away from that a little bit and and added to it in the sense that uh, they abolished the the little kind of puppet 
Abbasid Caliphate. Um, later on, they would claim that the the Caliphate actually now belonged to the Ottomans, which again was something nobody really bought, but they they tried to use it anyway. Um, but they also tried to impose uh, some of the Ottoman Empire's religious bureaucracy uh, on Egypt and and kind of uh, tighten things up a little bit, maybe more than they had been under the Mamluks. Um, what what really wound up happening, uh, especially in the 17th century and into the 18th century, was there was a, a huge growth of uh, Sufism, especially in the cities. Probably this had something to do with the loss of the caliphate in the sense that uh, that was at least that was something that people could kind of unify around. It was a symbolic thing uh, that was gone now. And so people were looking for other religious outlets. Uh, and we do see a, a sharp kind of uptick uh, in the 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 in in the number of Sufi orders, the number of Sufi lodges, kind of the uh, the overall uh, development of Sufism in Egypt. So, and just to uh, explain for everyone, Sufism is like kind of a mystical, more uh, I guess charismatic form of Islam. Yeah, it depends on the Sufi order. Uh, some of them are really quite orthodox. Um, some of them get really far out. They Many of them incorporate some indigenous, even pre-Islamic beliefs or practices. It's a, There's a wide range of things. In general, yeah, it's a sort of mystical um, intellect, even some in some cases intellectual, uh, form of Islam that's dependent, very heavily dependent on uh, a teacher-student relationship. So you have a, a Sufi sheikh or elder who kind of uh, has his ideas about Islam and he shares them with a trusted group of students who then go off and uh, become teachers in their own right. And, you know, these orders propagate themselves that way. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a little more kind of engaged, a little more... Um, active than than uh, sort of the standard uh, kind of standard practices of Islam. And it's more more popular, right, rather than official hierarchies, almost like Protestant versus Catholic in, in the West. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, that's that's it's it's the popular kind of expression of Islam at the street level uh, in many places. Islam doesn't have a strong religious hierarchy, at least not Sunni Islam. It doesn't have a very strong religious hierarchy anyway, um, but Sufism is kind of the the down and dirty, everybody's, you know, uh, uh, kind of on the on the street level at the individual level. Mm. Uh, the other thing that, that Egypt had uh, that was important from a religious perspective and important from a, a national kind of self-image perspective was it had Al-Azhar, which was and, and still is uh, the preeminent place for Sunni legal and intellectual development. Um, Al-Azhar is a mosque slash university in Cairo. Uh, was founded under the Fatimids, but it's and it's you know been around ever since. Uh, and it's it's really after the fall of Baghdad, which obviously was kind of the capital of Sunni Islam while it was uh, when it was the the capital of the Caliphate. After Baghdad fell, uh, Al-Azhar really became the, the place where if you were a leading scholar of, of Sunni Islam, if you were somebody who was a, a legal theorist or a religious kind of theologian, uh, this was the place you wanted to go. This was the place where the really influential heavyweights uh, in the scholarly community were at. Uh, and it was the place where if you needed a definitive ruling on something you know had a religious question you needed it to be answered this was the place that you would turn mm. we're talking about you know the kind of stuff they were doing at al-azhar you know it's not just like theology because um law and to an extent even government are also based on um you know, it's kind of all one thing right right i mean the, a lot of the work that would have been does, done at al-azhar would have been related to uh, Sharia issuing rulings about, uh, you know, geez, what do I do if this happens? What's the religious thing to do? And and uh, you would appeal to the scholars. And if you were really, you know, if you had the money and the power, you would appeal to the scholars at Al Azhar because they were the best. 
uh, to ask them, you know, what's the what's the right thing to do? What would Muhammad have done, basically? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so so it's all it's all tied up together. It's not just kind of hashing out the intricacies of the faith. You're actually issuing legal rulings, fatwas uh, that have practical application to to people's lives. But of course, not everyone in Egypt was Muslim. There was and still is a, a very big Christian minority um, called the Copts. Um, what was their status? So the Copts were all the way back to to the earliest uh, Arab conquests of Egypt. Uh, Copts were very much involved in administering uh, the province. In the early years, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the Arab conquests, uh, the Arabs tended to leave the people who had been in local bureaucracies uh, alone. Uh, they just had to change their allegiance from Constantinople to Medina or from, uh, you know, the, the Persian from Tessaphon to, to Medina. Uh, but more or less, they left people in place who were already running those places. And then, you know, this sort of that that turned into a kind of sense of inertia, even after the caliphate began to bureaucratize itself and, and standardize things and become a, a, a true kind of political empire. Um, these people, you know, the same people who had been bureaucrats tended to remain in those positions. And for Egypt, that was the Copts. Uh, there was an, uh, you know, there's obviously pressure, uh, not from any authorities, but just pressure if you wanted to be, uh, if you wanted to reach kind of the the heights of society. There was a lot of pressure to convert to Islam. Uh, and a lot of Copts did convert. But what we know of them, and there's not great records for the cops. There's actually better records for for Jews in Egypt at this time. But what we know of the cops in this period, they still tended to be uh, very important in administrating. You know, they had uh, important roles in administrative jobs, kind of uh, filling up the the ranks of the bureaucracy. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So we've talked a little bit about um, Al-Azhar, which gets into uh, my next question. What was intellectual life like? Uh, In particular, you know, in the West big changes going on in this period with the Enlightenment. Um, was there anything comparable in Egypt, or are we still talking about you know, things kind of being the way they had been? Mostly you're talking about things being the way they had been. In fact, it's, it's Napoleon uh, showing up and bringing you know, the French Revolution and uh, the printing press in particular uh, to the Middle East that kind of wakes everybody up to uh, what's going on. And you see... Um, you know, especially in the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century, uh, the story of the Ottoman Empire is about trying to capture uh, whatever, you know, th- they wanted whatever Europe was having, basically. Uh, you know, they built new schools that were modeled on the European system. They brought in European advisors. They tried to reform their military along European lines. But that that really kicks off with Napoleon's arrival. Um People were aware, uh, especially people who were involved in commercial activities uh, in Egypt at this time, were aware that there was something happening in Europe. And in the rest of the Ottoman Empire, they were aware of this too. The evidence was clear, uh, if only because the Arabs or the Ottomans, I guess, by this point, 
had started losing wars to the Europeans. I mean, that was that was the wake up call, really. Like we used to kick these guys asses on the regular uh, and we're not doing that anymore. So something must be different. Uh, but I don't think they had a really good handle on what that was. Uh, there wasn't a huge amount of contact uh, on, a, on a kind of intellectual or even diplomatic level, uh, you know, prior really to, to Napoleon. We do see in the Ottoman Empire, Selim III uh, comes to power earlier in the 18th century, and he does try to do some uh, European-style reforms. So clearly there were people who understood that the Islamic world had been surpassed, that they, you know, the Europeans had caught up to them and moved beyond them, uh, and they were trying to, to catch up. But on the whole, and especially in Egypt, which was sort of, uh, you know, more insular kind of place, the Mamluks were certainly not interested in what was going on outside their own world. Uh, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of thought given to, you know, hey, what's happening in Europe and uh, should we be jumping on this? Napoleon's arrival was a huge uh, wake up call for the entire region, but for Egypt especially. Mm hmm. So what was the view, you know, when when an Egyptian person thought of a Westerner and thought of the West, what did they think? Um, I mean, that's a good question. It would depend, I think, on on what kind of Egyptian person you're talking about. You know, I, I would imagine the Mamluks didn't think too much about it. The Mamluks were never a real expansionist bunch, even when they were in power in their own right. You know, they, they dealt with the, the Crusaders. That was about it. You know, I, I think mostly you would have seen Westerners as uh, traders in a commercial sense. These are the guys who come in and buy our stuff or they buy the stuff that we've helpfully shipped from from India. Uh, so, you know, not a not a terribly negative way to think about somebody, but sort of benign, I guess. Um, you know, I don't think there was a sense that Europe you know, there wasn't a sense yet until Napoleon showed up. Uh, of a threat from Europe or anything like that. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, my my inclination would be to say, on the whole, your your main impression of the Europeans would be, uh, these are the guys we do business with. Hmm, interesting. No lingering bitterness from that period of uh, rivalry, you know, when the, the Ottomans were on the rise and the West was desperate to uh, you know, find a place where they could hold them off. I, I mean, that may have been, yeah, I mean, the, the Ottomans certainly had more direct contact. I mean, I, I know that I'm kind of creating an artificial separation between Egypt and the, the Ottomans because Egypt is technically Ottoman at this point. Uh, but Egypt was so autonomous and so much its own thing uh, that I think you have to treat them not quite as separate entities, but but, you know, more or less as operating independently of one another. The Ottomans certainly, you know, they continued to to make war against Russia, against the Habsburgs. They were constantly kind of having these uh these issues in the Balkans. This isn't too far away from the the rise of serious nationalist movements in the Balkans. So, uh yeah, I mean certainly they were aware, or, you know, certainly their view of Europeans would have been uh colored by that. On the other hand, the Ottomans, you know, uh, had a long-standing alliance with the French that that was sort of upended actually when Napoleon invaded Egypt. Um, but you know, yeah, certainly for them, I think it was a more immediate kind of they had more immediate contact with Europeans on a negative in a negative way. For people in Egypt, this wasn't you know really a, a thing that they uh, dealt with very much. The Egyptians didn't usually fight in Ottoman wars because they were too far away. Their job was mainly to keep control of Egypt. Uh, there was a Janissary Corps in Egypt. One of the, the innovations that the Ottomans did manage to bring in with them uh, was that they brought the Janissaries, who were the main kind of Ottoman infantry, the firearm, you know, the guys, guys with the guns, basically, who won most of the Ottomans' wars for them. But the Janissary Corps that they brought to Egypt was very quickly kind of infiltrated by Mamluks <laughs> and uh, basically became another Mamluk institution. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't something it just wasn't something that people in, in Egypt would have uh, had to engage with on a regular basis. Of course, they certainly would have been aware, though, that Westerners are not Muslims. And what would have been the significance of that, of a big non-Muslim army showing up? 
Yeah, I mean, they were aware of that, but there was also, I mean, I, when Napoleon showed up and he, he printed his pamphlets and in mangled Maltese Arabic, <laughs> uh, there one of the one of the things that he talked about was aside from his BS about how, uh, you know, I really like Islam, actually. I've read the Quran, and Muhammad was a good guy. Uh, apart from that, one of his messages, uh, which, again, I think was really targeted at kind of Arab elites, uh, was these Mamluk guys aren't really good Muslims either. They're interlopers. They're foreigners. They don't really practice the faith very, uh, very well. So, I, you know, I think the arrival of the French army would have been... Uh, a little shocking to Egyptians because they were just not prepared to to think that the Europeans were capable of something like that. But because there was a pretty strong disconnect by this point between the Mamluks and the people they were ostensibly ruling, uh, I, I don't know that, that they would have given too much thought to the idea that this is a, a non-Muslim army invading Egypt. They, they were not happy with the Mamluks. They were very much not happy with the Mamluks. So, yeah, it probably caused a, a a bit of a stir, but I don't think it was something that, you know, I'm sure bothered some people, but I don't think it was a, a kind of major concern. Interesting. Um, you know, the, the French were very worried about that, Napoleon in particular, um, about that barrier between cultural and religious between the French and the Egyptians. But it sounds like from what you're saying, people were pretty used to that. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> they were used to foreign domination. Egypt hadn't been ruled by anything that you could call, anybody you could call e Egyptian since, you know, I guess you could go back to the Fatimids maybe, although they weren't even really Egyptian either. But it had been a long time. It had been a, a very long time since Egypt had kind of ruled itself in that sense. Uh, and it would be a long time. It would be all the way into the 20th century before you could really say it again. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, you don't get at least my impression is uh, there's not a lot of popular support for the Mamluks when they're fighting, say, the Battle of the Pyramids or when the when Napoleon rolls into Cairo. You don't see the people kind of rushing out into the streets or signing up to uh, to serve in the Mamluk army to defend the Mamluks or to defend Egypt uh, from these guys. It just sort of, uh, it's an occupation and it, it just kind of happens. So fair to say the French turned people against them rather than encountered people who were already kind of hostile to them? I don't know about that. I think the, their messaging played well into to the, the the conception that people already had of the Mamluks. And again, I'm, I'm mostly talking about people who lived in Cairo and had to deal with their BS on a regular basis. Uh, for people in the countryside, again, even, even to have the French show up, even to have these Christian French show up or these atheist French, whatever you want to call them, uh, show up, is like, how does this affect my day-to-day -day existence? I, I'm just growing my crops. I'm trying to make sure that I don't die tomorrow and my kids have enough to eat. Uh, you know, this doesn't really matter to me on a on a serious level. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think it was, um, you know, it wasn't something that, that consumed anybody uh, in that sense. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You mentioned a bit earlier that you know, the Ottomans historically had been allied with the French. What was the international situation? Where did the Ottomans fit in to the great power system of this era? This is, I mean, you're very close to sick man of Europe status at this point. They're definitely on the defensive. The high watermark of the Ottoman Empire is 
typically thought to be their last siege of Vienna, which was in the late 17th century and was a dismal failure, forced them to sign a peace treaty with the Habsburgs not long after that was uh, really the the first time uh, the Ottomans ever signed a treaty at their disadvantage. And it was that was a, a big um, sign that things were not going well for the empire. At this point, by the by the late 18th century, I mean, you know, you're only 50 years away from from the Crimean War. Uh, there's a lot of concern or growing concern at this point. I would I would say uh, among say, you know, I mean, everybody's kind of focused, going to be focused on Napoleon shortly after this. And right now, they're focused on the revolution, the French Revolution, and and how do we prevent this from uh, doing anything to us? Uh, but there are concerns, and they're going to get really serious in the next couple of decades, uh, that Russia, for example, is going to swallow up the Ottoman Empire, and that's going to throw the whole uh, balance of power out of whack, or that uh, the Habsburgs, or the Habsburgs are kind of, you know, uh, have, have their own problems at this point, but they're concerns that the Habsburgs are going to be able to swallow up part of the Balkans, and that's going to upset the balance of power. So it's, it, it's transitioning, the Ottoman Empire is transitioning, I think, from a uh, uh, an entity that was a player in European power politics to kind of the object of European power politics. Mm. Uh, instead of being a, a factor in its own right, uh, the role that it's play it's going to start playing, especially over the next couple of decades, is as the place where other where actual European powers kind of uh, play around. They you know it's like a sandbox. They kind of try mm. to chip away pieces of it. Uh, and meanwhile, the you know the more distant European powers, France and and Britain, uh, are going to watch this happening and think you know this is this is not very good news for us. Britain in particular is going to worry because you know the Ottoman Empire sits in between Britain and India, and that's you know that's a huge mm. concern for them. Yeah, as as Napoleon was well aware. Right, exactly. <laughs> Last thing I wanted to touch on, I'm talking about Napoleon. We can't not talk about military stuff, right? Right. So what did these Middle Eastern armies look like, both the Ottomans and the Mamluks? You know, what was the uh, uh, military historians love this term, the way of war? So what was the, the, the Middle Eastern way of war in this era? This is easier to talk about for the Ottomans because they were more militarily active than than the Mamluks were. But the Ottoman military was based around, still at this point, mostly based around the Janissaries who had, a, you know, in their day in, let's say, late 15th, early to mid 16th centuries, had been the maybe the preeminent fighting force in Europe. They were one of the first kind of professionalized armies. They were slave soldiers as well. Uh, they were conscripted from Christian populations in the Balkans. Boys from you know were taken from their families at very young ages. They were well trained and indoctrinated and converted to Islam. And they were one of the first kind of standing professional armies in Europe to adopt firearms. Ergo, you know, they were became quite proficient at using them and they were quite proficient at using uh, field artillery. They had tactics that were very advanced and how to deploy those things effectively. Uh, and in a time when a lot of other armies were still using cavalry, these guys would set up behind their wagon fortresses and uh, just pound the the hell out of people, you know, out of cavalry running about uh, on the battlefield. So uh, for a long time, that was a very effective system for the Ottomans. What began to happen was the Janissaries began to amass as soldiers tend to do when they're unchecked, and especially uh, in this kind of slave system, uh, they began to amass more political power. They began to own businesses where they were pro technically prohibited from doing that. They began to get married and have children, which technically when you were an active duty janissary, you weren't allowed to do. Basically, they got very fat and happy off of the, uh, you know, the, the other peoples of the Ottoman Empire, uh, and they stopped putting you know stopped really wanting to fight so much they had a lot a lot of reasons to to want to kind of stay home and manage their their finances who can blame them yeah um and so you know they, they just kind of became bloated and ineffective there were several efforts uh over the decades of the you know in the 18th and especially 19th century uh to do away with the janissaries none of these uh, were effective uh until i want to 
get the date right until right 1826. Finally, Sultan Mahmud II sent a new military force that he had built that was along European lines and, uh, you know, trained in European tactics and drilled on European exercises, put them out on the streets of Istanbul and just told them to kill every <laughs> every janissary they found, basically. I mean, he carted field artillery uh, to the main janissary headquarters and just blew it up, wow. basically, just massacred them. Uh, but up until then, you know, there were successive sultans who had seen this problem that the, the janissaries weren't uh, in top condition anymore. They weren't as it, they weren't advanced, they were kind of lagging behind the Europeans, and so they tried to uh, reform the military and create new forces that were based on Western models. But the Janissaries would always rebel, and because and they would do it quickly enough that that these sultans hadn't had a chance to really get their reforms in place, uh, and that would be the end of that. So for the Ottomans, it was it was uh, mostly a case of stagnation mm. and you know fighting. Uh, 18th century wars with 16th or, or even 15th century tactics. Uh, the Mamluks, uh, I mean, what we what we know of the Mamluks and the way that they fought largely comes from their response to Napoleon's invasion. And what that tells us is that they were even further, you know, they were really living in the past. Uh, these guys were primarily cavalry force and... They were when they encountered Napoleon's armies and Napoleon Napoleon's army. I mean, they just chewed the the Mamluks up. They weren't really able to to do much when they met Napoleon's army in the field. Uh, I think it's it's mostly because they were uh, stuck in you know fighting two centuries old with two centuries old tactics against a, a modern European army. So we're talking about like armies that are you know there's the core that's the standing army that's a social elite like the Janissaries or the Mamluks, and then just like kind of militias? Yeah, for the most part, you would see auxiliaries called up. The Ottomans had um, what are called sipahis, who were the, the land holders, like the, the aristocracy. That was their main cavalry force that became less and less important uh, over time as the kind of the, the main functional aspect of the Ottoman military became really the Janissaries and the people with guns. But yeah, they they had a sort of they had the cavalry levies, and then they had some conscription. This was not a very common thing for the Ottomans. Uh, I mentioned that they did it in, during the Thirteen Years' War with the Habsburgs, and it really went it really went very pear shaped for them because the the conscripts took their guns and said thank you very much, and then rebelled. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean they they tended to to use. Uh, levies, but most of the levies that the Ottomans used would come from, or most of the auxiliaries that they would use would come from Balkan Balkan vassals. So the Serbs often uh, lent soldiers to the Ottoman army, or, or uh, you know, other Balkan vassals would participate. Uh, Wallachians would, uh, whenever Wallachia was an Ottoman vassal, it went back and forth, obviously, many times over uh, the centuries, but. Um, you know, they would sometimes lend soldiers for the for the Mamluks. Um, you know, we don't hear much about any kind of levies of ordinary Egyptian Arabs. Uh, uh, that was probably because they feared that if they armed these guys, they're going to turn on us and, and right, overthrow yeah. us. Um, they did have there were Bedouin. Um, now, the word even the word Arab, I guess, at this time, I should be clear typically is used to refer to Bedouin, not to the way we think of Arab as anybody who is ethnically Arab or speaks Arabic uh, as a native language. Typically, the word was reserved for Bedouin, and Bedouin, we tend to think of nomads or people with a nomadic background. There were settled Bedouin who um, had recently identified a patch of land and decided to, this is ours now. Uh, they would often make themselves a nuisance as uh, Thieves, raiders, making life difficult for people. Uh, the road from Alexandria to Cairo, for example, was one was almost impassable. Uh, people had to go along the coast to Rosetta, and then from Rosetta uh, upriver to Cairo. You couldn't go directly from Alexandria to Cairo because the there were you know these kind of lawless gangs roaming around of Bedouin. Uh, they would sometimes be brought in as auxiliaries, whether to do you know, actual fighting and actual battles 
the Mamluks didn't fight a lot of actual battles, but they would often be brought in to do things like uh, patrolling the desert for people trying to get around customs duties and get around customs posts by, uh, you know, circumnavigating them. The Bedouin would be sent out. There's a funny story, actually, from uh, Ibn Battuta, who's a very famous Muslim traveler in the 14th century. Uh, there was a one main customs post between Mamluk Syria and Mamluk Egypt uh, where people, all travelers, had to stop and kind of, you know, pay their duties and their taxes. And the way that the, the Mamluks tried to enforce this was they would send Bedouin out into the desert every night to brush the sand, <laughs> it's like, flat. And then they would go out in the morning and look to see if there were any tracks of people trying to get around this place. I don't know how effective that was, but I, I assume, you know, he wasn't lying about this. So they, they had they served uh, when they were brought in to, to do kind of uh, state business. They, they served in those kind of auxiliary functions. But, yeah, I mean, you, you know, the, there wasn't we don't hear about a lot of the auxiliary forces. You mostly hear about the. The Mamluk cavalry and and their uh, uh, usually unsuccessful <laughs> exploits, especially around this time. So, I mean, really, we're talking about here. You know, the ruler has people he can call upon to furnish him troops, which is really more of almost like a feudal arrangement than it is a modern army. Yeah, I, I think it's more akin to that. There are, it's it's never. Uh, a great one-to-one match to talk about feudalism in the Islamic context. There are uh, things that are uh, unique to the that society that you know it's not a perfect comparison. Uh, but I think certainly if you're you know if you got a continuum between the old style feudal army and the modern professional European military, what the Mamluks have going on is far closer to the the feudal system. Mm. As far as tactics of these armies, um, really, we're talking about cavalry charges. Yes. And that's kind of it, right? Yes. And that's why they really don't do very well against Napoleon. Yeah, the Europeans cracked that code a while ago. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They'd figured this out by then. And uh, uh, I think it's I think it's uh, another kind of indicative sign of how little the Egyptians thought about or had any contact with Europe that this army showed up and they, you know, started running waves of cavalry at it to just get gunned down. Well, to them, I mean, most of the fighting these guys were doing was sort of, um, you know, like you said, these factional struggles, right? So, you know, riding around on a horse with a sword, if you're just kind of fighting another couple hundred guys who are similarly equipped, that's a perfectly fine way to go about it, right? I mean, they didn't really fight wars on a grand scale like Europeans did. Or even the Ottomans. Right. I mean, the Mamluk military heyday was back, you know, when they were fighting the Mongols or when they were fighting the Crusaders. Uh, so that was centuries earlier when that kind of tactic was fine for, for uh, full-on military engagement. But after that, you're right, The most of the violence that uh, the typical Mamluk would, would engage in in his lifetime would have been you know, me and a few dozen of my cohort are going to go out and fight another cohort and whoever wins gets to appoint the next sultan or something like that or the next Sheikh al-Balad. Uh, and, and yeah, the, it was it was organized mob violence. It was you know, more than it was uh, actual military, uh, you know, military thing. Well, um, that's all I have. Is there anything you wanted to add? Uh, no, I think, uh, you know, that's cool. If we, if I've answered your <laughs> questions, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. Oh yeah. Um, answered all my questions and more. That was very illuminating. Thank you. Sure. Well, um, thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to hear more from Derek Davison, he writes regularly at Loblog. That's L-O-B-E. Log.com. He also runs two sites of his own. The first is therela.com, which provides a running commentary on the journals of Ibn Battuta, the great medieval Arab explorer and adventurer. That story from the interview about the Bedouins sweeping the sand to catch smugglers comes from Ibn Battuta. If you found it interesting, there's more where that came from. That's therela.com. T-H-E-R-I-H-L-A-H.com.
The second website is And That's the Way It Was. There you'll find articles and a podcast that covers world history and international affairs. Derek and the other writers reliably bring the proper context and nuance. I highly recommend it. You can find it at attiw.com. That's just the initials of And That's the Way It Was. I'll put links to all three sites in the episode description for anyone who missed them. Well, that's it for now. For those of you who observe the holiday, Merry Christmas from the Age of Napoleon. For the rest of you, it will be Quintidi, the 5th of Niveaux, year 227 of the Republic, on the Jacobin calendar, which is the day of the dog, so that's not bad either. To everyone, have a happy new year. I'm grateful for all the support that helped make the show successful in 2018. If you've contributed financially, recommended us to a friend, shared us on social media, or sent me some word of encouragement or bit of information, thank you. And here's to another year of Napoleon. That's all for now. As always, thanks for listening. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marvelled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of Ancient Egypt. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. Go to ExplorersPodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.